So we're just going to jump right in. Um, there are lots of verses in the Bible, like we've been talking about so far, that um, let us know that God can, wants to, and will provide for us, right? I think about, um, I mean, right, like the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for their daily bread. Jesus isn't going to have us pray for something that he doesn't plan on providing. Um, Jesus' brother, James, reminds us that every good and perfect gift, right? Ben quoted it up here earlier, come down, comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. Jesus reminds us that although we who are parents, if our kid asked us for bread, we wouldn't give him a stone, or if he asked us for fish, we wouldn't give him a snake, how much more will our heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? Right? You, I could go on for a very long time. You get the point, right? So the passage that we're about to look at often gets taught along those lines, and I think there's good, good reason for it, but I think that just scratches the, the surface. So as we look at the next name of God, the Lord will provide, we're going to try to get below the surface and, and wrap our brains around what this, what this phrase means. Last week, we talked about Hagar, who gave God the name, the God who sees me. And Hagar's story is intermixed with Abraham's story. And we're, we're jumping back into Abraham's story. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to fill in some more of his backstory that we gave last week. Genesis chapter 12, God reveals himself to Abraham for the first time. He makes this initial covenant. He says, go, I'm going to give you this land. Go ahead. In that same chapter, Abraham responds with faith right away, and then he immediately proceeds to lie about Sarah being his sister. Great moment of faith, terrible moment of, of failure. Genesis chapter 13, we read that Abraham's offsprings will be like the dust of the earth. That's how many of them there will be. Genesis 15, 6, as many offspring as the stars. Are we getting the idea? Abraham, God is telling Abraham he's going to have lots and lots of descendants. This verse gets quoted in the New Testament, again from Genesis 15. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was Abraham's faith that God gave him credit for. And at the end of chapter 15, there's this cool covenant ceremony where traditionally both people, both parties to the covenant, which is like a sacred agreement, there are certain things that they had to do. Abraham falls asleep and God does both parties' parts of the covenant. God is going to make sure he fulfills not only his part, but he's going to fulfill Abraham's part of the covenant. Genesis chapter 16 is Hagar, what we just covered last week. Abraham and Sarah got tired of waiting on God, and they wanted to make things happen for themselves. Genesis 17, we read again, that God is going to make Abraham's descendants greatly increase. Generations, na nations, it just goes on and on in, in this description. And at the same time, he gives him the covenant of circumcision, which is a physical symbol of this covenant. And last time I tried to explain why circumcision, I had Tim Keller do it. This time I'm going to quote a pastor named Zach Wilson, just to try to help us understand why this seemingly bizarre ritual was included. So Hagar was the maidservant of Sarah. Abraham and Sarah got frustrated waiting for God. They didn't think he was going to fulfill his covenant, so they took matters into their own hands. 
Sarah had Hagar sleep with her husband, and they ended up having a child, but it was not the child of promise. This is what Pastor Zach Wilson has to say about circumcision. It seems strange until one realizes that God takes the very spot Abraham had used to deny and disparage God's covenant, covenant promise of a son, and turns it into his very sign of his covenant. Circumcision, it turns out, is a bit of strategic sanctification. It is certainly painful, which Abraham certainly deserves in punishment for his sin, but it is also a sign to Abraham that God's covenant promises to him still stand. In other words, Abraham's circumcision is a surgery of grace, and grace is what Abraham needs to cover his sin. God provides even in the midst of our failing to follow God, failing to go about life God's way. Genesis chapter 18, Abraham and Sarah get visited by three people, one of whom is identified as the Lord. A lot of scholars speculate that this is the Trinity showing up. Some people say it's the Lord and two of his angels, but there are three spiritual beings having a conversation, having a meal with Abraham and Sarah, and they say, not only are you going to have descendants, but they're like, in a year, Sarah's going to be pregnant. And they both laugh at them. Genesis 20, Abraham lies about Sarah a second time. They have an encounter with not just God, but with the God, the whole, the entirety of the Godhead, right? And Abraham turns around and lies about Sarah, almost the exact same situation. Sarah, say you're my sister so I don't get killed. And then in chapter 21, Isaac, the child of promise, is finally born. So if you do the math, it's 25 years from the time that God promises Abraham that he's going to have descendants to the time that Isaac is born. I know some of y'all have been waiting for God to come through for a long time, right? For a long time. He will come through. 25 years is a long time. All right, so that brings us to chapter 22. I'm going to read um, all of chapter 22, and then we'll talk about a couple of things from it. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. This is after the birth of Isaac. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. It's interesting that the beginning of Abraham's story starts with go. God tells Abraham to go to this land he's going to give him. And this is the end, kind of the end of Abraham's story. He's telling Abraham, go to this mountain that I'm going to show you. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, meaning perform the sacrifice, and then we will come back to you. We will come back to you. Hang on to that. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they had reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. 
sense of urgency in the angel's voice. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possessions of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So we're going we're gonna to focus on verse 14. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So just like in the story of Hagar, um, there, this is a story that just is very difficult to hear to our modern Western ears. It's not easy for our minds to, to comprehend. So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to identify the giant elephant in the room, and we will discuss it, and then we will escort him out of the room, right? God is not looking for child sacrifice, okay? Just be really, really clear about that. Um, we see in, in verse 2, he says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Four different identifiers to express how huge in Abraham's life the um, fulfillment of the promise of a descendant through Isaac was. Right? When repetition in the Bible of the same word or like phrases is for emphasis. They didn't use exclamation points back then. They just they repeated themselves. This was, this was huge. What we need to know is at that time and in those places, child sacrifice was something that was practiced by the surrounding peoples. And there were even points in time when the people of God who had this tendency to look around them and go, oh, that's how they're worshiping. Let's do it that way, would sacrifice their children. And infamously, even King Manasseh, one of the kings of Israel, sacrificed his son. And it brought about punishment. It was a big part of the reason for why the whole nation of Israel was taken into captivity. God had specific commandments against child sacrifice. There's a couple different chapters in Leviticus, a couple different chapters in, in Deuteronomy where he specifically says, don't do this. Don't do it. Um, and it was, it was never part of God's plan. In, uh, this is from the, past, from the prophet Jeremiah, and this is what the angel of the Lord, the Lord gave to Jeremiah to share with the people who were practicing these horrible things. They have built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. It was never part of God's plan for this to take place. So finally, um, for, sorry, it was never part of God's plan for child sacrifice. It was not supposed to be part of the mix. Fast forward to today. There are, there are some people who will level this criticism at Christianity that Jesus' death on the cross was nothing more than cosmic child abuse. It was child sacrifice. 
And that can only come from a place of misunderstanding the very existence of God. God perfectly, uniquely exists as one being and three persons. People have spent thousands of years trying to figure out how to explain the Trinity. But this is how God exists. One, one being and three persons, all who share the same essence. We use the words Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are titles, right? But it's one being, which means they have existed co-eternally and co-equally throughout eternity. And in eternity past, Jesus was part of the team that put together the plan of salvation, which included his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was all in on this plan, right? Even, even to the extent of in the garden, the night before he knew he was going to die, he said, God, if there's another way, this is, this is literally going to be the most horrible thing ever. If there's another way, let's do it. But if not, I'm still all in, right? So um, it's, it was part of the design, part of the plan of salvation for, for Jesus, God himself, right? It's God himself who provides the sacrifice. God himself provided a way for the sacrifice to, to be offered and to keep his promise to Abraham and to Isaac, just like in our situation. And that brings us to this idea of grace. So a perfect being like God, the best thing that he can do with his time is to draw attention to himself, right? To bring about his own glory. And one of the primary ways that he does that, if not the primary way, is through a relationship with humanity. And that relationship is marred by the sin of humanity. And what the Lord provides is the solution to that separation from God, right? We have this tendency as people Unfortunately, it's part of our DNA to want to be God and play God and to determine for ourselves what's right and wrong. Right? We don't have to look very far around us to see how, how that happens. I mean, I don't have to look outside. I see how I do that almost daily. It was what Adam and Eve did way back when. It's what we continue to do. And that separates us from, from God. So we have this really interesting the Bible tells the story of God in, scholars call it progressive revelation, right? As, as time goes on throughout scripture, we learn more and more. And we can look back in hindsight and we can see Jesus in this story of Abraham and Isaac and the ram. Jesus throughout scripture is referred to as the lamb of God. In January, we're gonna start studying the final book of the Bible, Revelation. And the central symbolic image in the book of Revelation is the Lamb of God who has already been slaughtered, who is sitting on the throne with the Alpha and the Omega, with the eternal God, meaning that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, is ruling and reigning. What God did for Abraham in the Ram, he did for us in Jesus the lamb right it was God himself provided the sacrifice 
A sacrifice was required. A sacrifice was given, but it was God himself who provides it on our behalf. So that kind of um, leads me to like the big idea. If you don't walk away with anything else today, walk away with this thought. If the Lord requires it, he will provide it. If the Lord requires it, he will provide it. Let's think about that for a second. We can think about just the example here. He asked Abraham for a sacrifice. He provided the sacrifice. Think about some other biblical examples. The Apostle Paul. God required humility of Paul. Paul had crazy credentials. He, was, he had everything that anybody could ask for. He had every, if somebody was going to be a braggart and be arrogant, could have been Paul. God required humility of him. God also knew how Paul was wired, likelihood that he could have gone down that road of, of boasting and of arrogance. God gave Paul what Paul describes as a thorn in his side to keep him humble. Right? So think, about, think about Peter. Peter famously denies Jesus three times. But after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is going to require Peter to lead his church. He had already told him, you know, on you, I'm going to build this church. Jesus requires Peter to be a leader of the church. Jesus provides his reinstatement on that. They had, Jesus had this breakfast on a beach with Peter, grilled up some fresh fish over a campfire, and asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus provided the manner to reinstate him into that position of leadership. Jesus' very own brother, James, didn't think Jesus was who he said he was when he was alive. Right? That'd be, be like, think about having Jesus as a brother. And he, he wasn't until after Jesus died and was resurrected that Jesus showed himself to James. Jesus was re- going to require James to lead the Jerusalem church. And through a very tumultuous time, dangerous time, to identify with Jesus. And in order to get James to a point where he could do that, Jesus revealed himself to James after his resurrection. There was a point <clears throat> not too long ago, I, God was clearly speaking to me. It was through a book, speak, like he was requiring me to be all in. There was some stuff going on in my life, and I was doubting God's goodness, goodness and his faithfulness. And this book pointed me to Romans chapter 8, verse 31 which says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And I'm going to butcher the rest of this verse, but the idea of it is that if God wouldn't spare his own son for us, if he didn't do that, he's certainly not going to withhold all these other good things that he wants to provide for us. God required me to be all in, and he provided a verse through a book that got me there. So it starts with accepting the grace right that we have in Jesus as that gift that opens the door to relationship with God and then on an ongoing basis for us right maybe it would look like God's going to require you to extend yourself he's putting it on your heart on your mind to extend yourself he's going to 
maybe he will make known to you somebody who has a need, a coworker, somebody in the neighborhood. Maybe he'll introduce you to a new person just for the sake of you meeting a need. Maybe God is going to require you to give more financially. And you're like, that ah, just does not make sense in the budget. God will provide the funds. If, that's what, if it's him who's requiring that, he will provide the funds. Sometimes he does this by subtraction. If God wants more of your time, if he wants you to spend more time with him, if he wants you to slow down, he will take something else out of your calendar. If God requires it, he will provide it. Right? If he wants you to have an amazing, healthy relationship with someone, he might take out an unhealthy one, which at the time could feel confusing and not like a good thing. If the Lord requires it, he will provide it. So um, as, we, as we think about grace, grace produces faith. But not only does it produce faith, but faith is a grace of God. It's a gift. The faith that we have is a gift. And the faith that we see in Abraham, we can identify a couple of things. And the first one is a faith that grows. We look at Abraham, we look at the mistakes that he made along the way, the lying, the abusing of Hagar, the lying again, the not trusting God to keep his word. But then in the moment of truth, right, I said, keep that, keep that verse in mind. He tells his servants, we will return. We're going to worship and make the sacrifice and then we will return he trusted that Isaac was going to come back with him um, Isaac asked him father where's the where's the lamb for the sacrifice the Lord himself will provide for the sacrifice nobody starts with a perfect faith right we all bumble and fumble and stumble our way along some of us more than others um but it's a faith that's growing. If we think about plotting our spiritual lives on a timeline, we want our faith to be moving up. As time goes by, we want our faith to be getting stronger, right? And God will provide those opportunities. Faith, Abraham displayed faith in the promises of God. It's a really interesting verse, all the way in the New Testament, um, that talks about this, this occurrence. This is uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, just a couple of verses. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God has said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and in so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham got to the point where he was taking God at his word. The promises of God became real to Abraham, so much so that he was ready to do the unthinkable. And God provided for it. It was really, really kind of amazing. And the last piece of this is faith expressed in obedience. Right? This is, there's nothing flashy about this but this is the foundation that's why i said there's more to just god providing stuff for us right this is the very foundation of christian thought the idea that grace by faith results in obedience in ephesians chapter 2 for it is grace it is by grace you have been saved through faith and it is not from yourselves 
It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Grace by faith produces good works. The faith that Abraham had was became, grew to be so strong that it produced an obedience in him. It produced an obedience in him. Now, we kind of went through some of those things and those examples that I, I gave about how if God requires it, he will provide it. There'll be specific things, right, that God requires of each of us individually. But every follower of Jesus is, um, I'm going to jump to the, is required to do these things. This is a passage really interesting because one verse later, Micah um, is writing and he's like, should I offer my firstborn to God as a sacrifice? He says, No. And this is, this is the reply. This is the obedience that God requires of every single person who calls himself a Christ follower. He has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is where we get look up, lean in, and reach out, right? This is in its simplest, love God and love others. Humbly with your God, love, love God, love others, do justice, love mercy. To act justly for us means to use our power on behalf of those who have less or none. To love mercy literally is translated to love love. That word hesed that we've talked about, the Hebrew word for love. To love love. To be willing to work for the good of someone else. Especially those who might not do the same thing for you. Or love your enemies. And to walk humbly with your God means we move with, in, and through God, recognizing that he is perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly loving, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. And he wants to be in a relationship with us, fearfully, wonderfully made, created in his image, rebellious beyond belief, incapable of finding our way back to him on our own. We recognize those, those two sides of that coin, who God is and who we are, and we walk with him in the knowledge that is by his grace that we can walk with him day in and day out. If the Lord requires it, he will provide it by his grace. We keep our eyes open, our ears open, and we look for his hand to see how he is at work. So I'm gonna... Um, close this in prayer, but I want you all just to, to close your eyes for a second if you feel comfortable doing that. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Have you accepted the grace that is Jesus Christ? The gift that God wants to give you to ensure your relationship with him. By faith, are you trusting that Jesus is enough Jesus is enough to conquer sin and death, to conquer the sin and death in your life specifically, and to empower you to live with him, like him, and for him in this life. And has that faith begun to express itself in obedience by doing justly, by loving mercy, and by walking humbly with your God.
Jesus, we thank you for the, your grace. We thank you for the ultimate gift that you gave in yourself. Jesus, we come before you as broken, hurting people, acknowledging that only in your grace and in belief and trust in you can we walk with you and be made right. Jesus, we ask that you would make us into the kind of people that that faith expresses itself outward in obedience as we live and walk and move and breathe with you. Jesus, I thank you for this room full of my brothers and sisters. Thank you for this time. Most of all, we thank you for you. Jesus, we love you. Amen.